Okay, so we're going to be in the book of Esther, the book of Esther, um, which is, if you have a pew Bible, it's in there, um, and it's on page 396. Um, I had a chance on a men's retreat uh, to share some thoughts about Mordecai, who's the guy in the book of Esther, I believe the primary person talked about in the book of Esther. Um, and we're going to look at, we've looked, I looked at Mordecai there some, to, and today we're going to look at his counterpart, uh, a guy named Haman. Um, and we're going to be looking at Haman, and as we do so, we remember the time period this takes place in. The Persian Empire was at its height when the book of Esther was written. Um, there is a 44% of living human beings at the time was under Persian rule, the highest percentage under one empire in the history of the world, was based in this capital city of Susa, where we see this story take place. And um, we are going to see through this character, Haman, and his counterpart, Haman and Mordecai, uh, something that I believe is of utmost importance I believe that what we will see in Haman is the very thing that has ruined millions of relationships, has closed the door in thousands of churches, believe that what we will talk about in the life of Haman is the number one single greatest threat to human happiness and the most deadly disease in this room. It is something that has been a monster in my own life and, and need daily, along with you all, the grace of God to confront that which we will talk about, and that is the inner world of pride. Haman exhibits this deep inner world of pride, and we're going to be kicking off in Esther. And if you don't have a Bible, find a pew Bible in front of you, get an iPhone out, because we're going to try to walk through these 10 chapters together and uh, focusing in most specifically um, on those that deal with this man, Haman. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that you are bigger than our pride, that you are more beautiful than what pride promises, and that you are more lasting than the things that we try to hold on to in our small ego. Pray you give us grace as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so <clears throat> what happens in the beginning couple chapters of the book of Esther, we're going to move quickly through. Basically, this is the rise of Esther. Queen Vashti was there, and then throughout chapter one, she was not there. And so they came, and they had a big contest to, and brought in all of these different women, one of whom was named Esther. And Esther was adopted by her uncle, a guy named Uncle Mordecai. And Esther, through these first two, rises to become and win this contest and be the queen of all of the Persian Empire. And so she rises to power all the while Mordecai adjusts his life to be able to continually care for and see to the needs of his now famous daughter. By the time the end of chapter two, there is a feast given in honor of Esther. And we see in this time Mordecai daily visiting at the city gates Esther. And so that's what's happening in the beginning couple of chapters. Um, 
what we see then is we, we see uh, the introduction of Haman. Haman comes right after Mordecai exposes a plot. So when Mordecai comes, he, um, he is visiting Esther all the time, walking in and out. Well, there's a couple guys, Big Thani and Teresh, who are talking about a plot to kill Xerxes, the most powerful emperor, arguably in history, pound for pound. And so he realizes this plot. He tells Esther. Esther tells Xerxes. Big Thani and Teresh are taken care of, and Xerxes lives on. And that is written down in some annals. So Mordecai is gaining some favor along with Esther, but that event's quickly forgotten. And in the upcoming time period, we're not exactly sure when, we see the rise of another person. First was the rise of Esther and Mordecai, and then is the rise of Haman. And in this rise of Haman is a man who is, uh, has considerable wealth and has, after a time period, bought the, or, or won the favor of Xerxes such that he appoints him to the second highest position of authority in the whole kingdom. He is vice emperor, vice king, whatever you call that, vice, whatever. So he is there, and he is the second most powerful. And by edict, the king says, so important is this man, when he walks by, you must bow before him. Mordecai, who's one of the Jewish nation, who's commanded, and we see throughout the Old Testament, not to bow the knee to another god, is at the gates. And Haman comes to work each day. And Haman starts coming to work, and at first, he doesn't know who this Mordecai guy was. He actually has to be informed about this Mordecai, because what he notices is he walks around, everyone bows down, all life is good. That's where we pick up in chapter 3, chapter 3, starting in verse 5. He's, now he's been told about Mordecai, and then he notices, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged, yet having learned who Mordecai and his people were, he scorned the idea of just Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. With one ego hit to Haman, the entire story that God is building throughout the Old Testament is put on notice. We're talking about the extinction of the people it appears to, in one, one little ego strike, he is now plotting this powerful man in the kingdom, second most powerful in the empire, is now looking to eliminate Mordecai and his people. And as we go through, um, we're going to look at, if you're keeping notes, you're going to end up with three different geometric shapes because that's how complicated we are this morning. This first of which is going to look like this. It's just a square. And we're going to look at simply the difference between the inner world of pride in Haman and the inner world of humility in Mordecai. And first thing we see in the text is that we see that there is a difference when it comes to a perspective of time. How does the inner world of pride look at time versus humility? You see, in this text, you can see right away... That as Haman's experiencing this, he's, he goes, he's always bad down, to always bad down, to didn't really notice Mordecai, is told that immediately as he sees Mordecai, his day is done. He is enraged by this one individual, so enraged that he must eliminate that person and all his people. He is urgent to try to uh, go after this. If, if you know much about pride, basically meaning you know much about being a person, you know that it's... It's brutal for the proud heart to wait on other people to come around. Man, it's, the, it's so difficult in our pride 
to let, well, that person may feel this way about me, and just, I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to care, right? I'm just going just gonna to be, but there's an urgency of how can I harm, or how can I wish ill of, or how can I eliminate this feeling towards me. It's very difficult for Haman and for the proud heart to let people come to their own thoughts and their own conclusions. By this point, Haman is in damage control. And it says in the text that the people were watching Haman to see what he would do. Haman's ego has been hit, and Haman is going to let everyone know, you don't touch my pride, and I will passionately, urgently, immediately drop everything else until my pride is restored. Mordecai, on the other hand, we don't know the full what happens exactly when, but we're, we understand that from the time Esther is brought into the palace till this time where everything begins to happen very quickly in the book of Esther is about 14 years. So Mordecai is coming to the palace and to back, and, and uh, if Xerxes coming in, he's not bowing the knee to Xerxes either. So what he is doing is he's putting himself in a place of risk every single day. Every single day, not knowing what will happen. And now with Haman is doing the exact same thing. He is coming, and if you know much about empires and emperors and stuff, it's not the safest place to be is near an emperor, right? Vashti is already gone. Now Esther's in. And so Mordecai is putting himself continually at risk, and he's learning this, this word liminality. Liminality is the largest word I know, which is why I want to tell you about it. He's content in liminality. Liminality is a word which means in between. So um, it's like in between things happening. A graduation ceremony. That's a moment of liminality. It represents the concluding of one era, but not yet to the beginning of another. The concluding of one, but not to the beginning of another. What is one of the most difficult things for the human being to do is to worship God in between. After God parts the Red Sea, after the ten plagues are done, after he's delivered us from suffering, after us he's done a miracle, praise comes naturally from the human. In between, most of us it's just easier to bite our fingernails, put our head down, and just try to get one day at a time. And usually that leads us to some erratic, urgent, upset behavior But we see in the life of Mordecai continual consistency. The text makes a note that daily he would come. Daily he would come, behave the same exact way, and he continues to be faithful in the in-between. The Psalms are huge on this. So many of the Psalms are not written after God has done something. So many of the songs are written in the in-between. And if you're in an in-between point in your life where you're like, you're not sure what's going to happen next, you're not sure how that relationship's going to happen, where that paycheck's going to come from, uh, what's going to happen with your child, or, or will you get through this, or what you should do for college, or will you be married, these questions in the in-between, you're like, God, I know I will worship after, but right now I just have this urgent desire to fix. Take a look at the Psalms. Because the psalmist takes a step back and a look of humility and says, right here, right here. Uh, author I really appreciate talks about liminality and he basically says, 
most often where we see God's presence is in the in-between. So learn God in the in-between, and we see that in relation to time. We see that the character of a person is often um, seen by the, by the what? What do we say? We say character is seen by how they behave when no one's looking. I believe the faith of a pilgrim is often demonstrated in how we live before we see God come through, how we believe and behave in uncertainty. Okay, so then we, the, the text moves on, and we're going here, and we're to the, the middle of chapter 3, verse 8. So Haman has got this urgent need. All other things are put in the background. This is the forefront. He must take care of Mordecai and his people. Verse 8 says that Haman went to King Xerxes. There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all those other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. 10,000 talents of silver is 750,000 pounds. That's a lot of pieces of silver, silverware, right? I mean, there's, that's a lot of silver. But immediately, um, Haman is ready to leverage his political capital and this enormous sum of money. Why? Because his identity is on the line. And how the heart of pride deals with identity is it says, my identity is built on my position and my amount of power. And for Haman, he's like, I'll take less money, right? I'll even risk something by going and asking the king to eliminate a people group, not a small ask. And so I will risk this because my, my identity is on the line. My, my, the way people see me, the way that people, that other guy on the street saw what Mordecai did. I wonder what he was thinking. And that Mordecai, he thinks I'm small. He thinks I'm unimportant. I must have, I must restore my ego here. Apostle Paul, we've looked at this in Romans, talks a lot about the word, word flesh and talks about the flesh and the spirit. And that flesh, the thing inside of us that, that, we often, that leads to often bad behaviors or is motivated from a bad place, simply put, what is this flesh, this sinful part of us, this part of us that, that, that is re, uh, rebelling against God? Very simply, I, I believe the f- flesh is this. It's our neurotic need to gain significance and security on our own. It's a neurotic need to fill our lives with something that gives us significance or gives us some sense of security that we can do on our own. That part of Haman is touched. That part of pride is touched. And so Haman is willing to risk anything to restore his, imagine, his position and his power. Uh, one of my buddies has this by his desk, a quote from an author. He says this, the human ego wants two things. It wants to be separate and it wants to be superior. This is why Jesus says the self must die for something much better to be found. 
As long as the ego is in control, not much new will ever happen. Or as a student um, that I had when I was in Chicago, basically a, a, a local pastor who this guy knew well, knew his family, his ego overtook the church and um, eventually led to his removal, and it was a very public, very difficult situation. And this student who, who kind of has one foot kind of believing in the faith and the other foot really, really damaged by church and not knowing how exactly to reconcile those two, he said, and I checked in with him, I said, man, how is all of this hitting you? He said this simply, this reinforces my belief that we are just all about ourselves. That compared to Mordecai. Mordecai is all over this book. And every chapter, and you look at from beginning to end, it is a story, I believe, mostly about Mordecai. Mordecai is never in a position of self-promotion. He's never talking about his accomplishments. And look real quickly at verse chapter 4 of 3. This is when the people talked to Mordecai about him not bowing. It says, day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. Catch this. For he had told them he was a Jew. That is not what I would say if I was Mordecai. I would say, oh, you want to know who I am? You think you're tough? I'm the one who saved the king, the most powerful emperor in history. That plot, that was me. Check the books. Or, hey, guess what? You think, I'm, you think I'm small stuff? You don't think I matter that much? Yep, adopted the queen. What do you got? Right? I mean, this is, this is a man, by his proximity to the city gates, people assume that he actually was a leader in the community. Mordecai had a lot of different things he could say. Who am I? I am this. I am that. And Haman's saying, listen, I'm second in control. Mordecai could say, oh, yeah? Let me tell you who I am. He says, I'm one of God's people. That's my identity. My identity is not something that is self-made or self-accomplished is found in what God has given. The role, the humility says that everything that I have in God is worth so much more than the false things my ego tries to put up for my identity. After this, Haman is... Uh, or Esther goes, and Esther and Mordecai have a conversation because the edict goes out from uh, the king. The king says, Haman, I'm even going to keep, keep your silver. We're going to eliminate that group of people, whoever they are, don't know much about it. And the end of chapter 3 says this, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command. The edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. This is a diverse empire, lots of different people groups. The threat of one of them being eliminated would not only be a, a shaking reality to the Jewish people, but to all of the other groups of people that were there. People were thrown in uproar, and Haman sits down for a drink because Haman says, I have what I want. There is very little in this world that feels as good as the euphoria of being ego-satisfied. The feeling of accomplishing 
uh, of pride and really thinking you really are something. I chase that a lot. And it's a great feeling. You can't say it's not a great feeling, right? This is what, what he drove Satan out from heaven. He's like, heaven, great. This feeling, I want it more. It's Adam and Eve, right? It's like this reality, great, but I want something a little bit more. The feeling of the ego satisfied that I have done it, that I have secured significance and security on my own is a great, it is a tremendously positive feeling and it is one that we often chase. Haman has this feeling. So Mordecai and Esther come they talk, they figure out they're going to fast. Mordecai rips his robes. He's in such grief. And Esther goes and says, I'm going to risk my life, according to them talking, for such a time as this, it says in the text. Esther goes, risks her life to the king, and the king says, Esther, what do you want? She says, I want to have, have a party tonight. And here's the guest list, you and Haman. Haman hears of this, and the king says, yes. Haman's like, I got it made. Like, literally, this day could not go better. Everything, or actually, this week, it's happening over a week, this week could not go better. Everything is happening. Why? Because my position and my power are satisfied. And this is what happened. Look at five, chapter 5, verse 9. Haman went out on that day, and in high spirits... But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, many sons, all the ways king had honored him and elevated him above all the nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. Hear this. But all, all, all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Here's something about the mind, the thinking of the inner world of pride. It is incredibly obsessive and incredibly fragile. The happiness, the joy that Haman had forgetting all this was completely deflated and punctured by one guy. And that guy's not even hurling insults. He just didn't, he just stayed seated instead of falling on the ground. And for Haman, he's, he's obsessing and he's even telling all the conscience, I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this, I'm measured up here. And in his brain, he knows exactly where he compares to king and queen and people, Mordecai. Everything is stacked up. Everything is compared. Everything is good. But I got my ego hurt. And that collapsed everything. I, don't, I, I know this way better than I wish I did. That, that my ego can rise and fall so easily that the smallest slight would feel like I have to fix that perception or what does it mean? We, uh, we're in Michigan on a missions trip and we got a crib so that we could have one of the moms have a crib, etc. And then we're leaving, we're like, oh, we don't have time. So we're going to pay the Grimes family who live up there, Scott Grimes, take the crib, 
And if you could put it back to the house where it was, you got to take it apart and reassemble it. And he said, we'll pay you to do it. Well, my wife misunderstood what I had said. And so she said, oh, yeah, Scott Crimes did that. And she told, um, she told my mom this. And she said, yeah, Scott Crimes, that ben, ben offered him $200, the church's money. He really just spends like whatever. And that's not true. My mom doesn't care. But I heard that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You think I would offer $200? And it was like all I could think of was like, where is my mom? How do I fix this perception? Because it wasn't that much money. Truth be told, I offered him $100, which is really just pretty overpaying too. But in my mind, my mind could not handle the fact that I was misrepresented. Whatever good in that day was, boom, rivaled. Babe, you can't, you got to be more careful with your words. What if this comes out? The church hears about it. I have to somehow get this, but this crib, why? Because no matter what I build up in the ego, it can get collapsed so easily. The thinking of the proud is obsessive and fragile compared to what we have with Mordecai. There's no text in this book about Mordecai talking about himself. And of course, as his people are, as, as his life is being threatened, he's the cause. He could feel so bad of himself. Oh, I'm the worst. I caused this. I should have bowed down. All, he could get all introspective in that space. He thinks about Esther and he weeps for his people and doesn't talk about himself at all. His ego was not on the line even in the face of this. He was practicing what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Tim Keller writes a little pamphlet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's worth its weight in gold. If you're a person where you hear the freedom of self-forgetfulness and you say, oh my, that, I want that so much. This book was an incredible incredible aid biblically to talk through that. In this, in there, he says this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking less about myself, it's thinking about myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to such thoughts as, I'm in this room with these people, does that make me look good? True gospel means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness is the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. The story goes on. Haman talks with his people, and by the end of uh, 14... Uh, he comes up with a plot, and basically Haman cannot handle waiting for the extinction of all the Jews and just have Mordecai be another person that's killed. He needs Mordecai to be especially sought out. So he gets a 70-foot pole, which I'm pretty sure is just a giant tree and you rip off all the branches. Okay, and he's got a 70-foot pole, and he says, here's what I want. I want to put Mordecai, and I want to impale his body on the pole so everyone can see, you don't mess with me. That'll show him. Finally, that'll show him. And that finally gets Haman back into an ego-satisfied thought. Haman then goes, and he's got this thought. He's going to go to the king the next day. This is between banquets of banquet one. Oh, when they went to the first banquet, uh, 
Xerxes asked, what do you want, Esther? Esther says, I just want another party tomorrow night. So there's a banquet happening tonight. And between banquets, if everything is going great, but I'm going to ask for Mordecai within this time because I just can't handle it anymore. He goes, up to Mord- he goes up to Xerxes, and he heads to Xerxes, and he's about to ask, please, can I just impale one guy on a 70-foot pole? <laughs> like, just one skewer, and that's all I want. Xerxes sees me, says, oh, Haman, come here. Haman, I could not sleep last night. And I had, I had some people go and read some books about how great I was. It was wonderful. And as, as they were reading me these books, I discovered there's someone who, who should be experiencing great glory in the kingdom, who should be, should be complimented and praised. And Haman's like, who else could it be, right? And he says, he says, King, I, I know what you should do. Basically, I had this dream last night. What you do is you get that wonderful guy, me, and you take him on a horse, and you lead him all around the city. Why? Because what does the ego want? Recognition, right? Recognition. If done something, praised. Yeah, let's let everybody know. Get him on a horse, parade him through the city, and yell at the top of their lungs, this is what the king does for someone he finds favor with. And that's Haman's suggestion. And Xerxes is like, wow, you came up with that a little creepy quick. But I understand, and that's a great idea. And so he says, let's do it. The guy's name is Mordecai. Because I found out Mordecai saved my life back in the day. And Haman then has to lead the horse, saying, this is what the king does for the one he great, da, 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 da. Which is just awesome, Right? And so what ultimately happens after that humiliating experience for um, Haman, he goes back, doesn't talk about the skewer at that point because probably not going to work because now he knows who Mordecai is, but goes to the banquet. Esther at the banquet, Xerxes says, great party, what do you want? Esther says, you know what I'd really like is for you not to kill me and all my people. And Xerxes is like, whoa, what are you talking about? She said, this is what Haman tricked you into doing is the elimination of my entire people. The king gets so mad at Haman, he walks out of the room. It just goes from bad to worse for Haman. King is so mad, he's literally, he removes himself from the room. So then Haman gets on his knees, and he's, he's clutching at Esther, begging her, please, you gotta save my life. That guy ain't gonna save my life. You gotta save my life. Xerxes is all mad, and the text says he walks back in, sees Haman grabbing at Esther, and he's like, what are you doing now? Like, you would do this to my wife in my presence? Long story short, doesn't work out good. Haman is taken and placed on top of the 70-foot pole that he made for Mordecai. Eventually, the signet ring that was given only to Haman was removed and given to Mordecai. There's uh, a whole lot of, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled Humble yourself, you'll be exalted in this text. Real quick, you can strip through this. We kind of jumped by this. When they were in, the, in a vision of suffering, um, when they feel ego hurt, the world of pride or Haman experiences anger, bitterness, a feeling like, how do I stop that thing that has that stopped me from having what I want? The ego is so into, we're so into getting what we want for ourselves to feel good, to elevate, to, that if we don't get it, we want to kill whatever doesn't. And our, our answer is anger. And anger is simply destructive energy, right? 
Anger can be good if it's destroying something truly evil, but what anger is is destructive energy. And normally, much if not most of our anger comes when our ego is slighted, and what we really want to do is destroy whatever is slighting us. The other response to suffering is not, Mordecai is not happy. His people are going to be eliminated. He's actually ripping his clothes. But he doesn't turn to anger. He's not angry at Haman like, dude, get over yourself. His response is one of grief. Anger is a power emotion, right? Anger feels good because it makes me feel tough. I can get through the day with anger. It gets me strong. I'm strong when I'm angry. I'm not vulnerable. And the proud heart, when it gets injured, wants to go to something tough. And it usually goes to anger and bitterness. The vulnerable heart, the humble heart, the open heart, experiences suffering truly as grief. Grief's super hard to experience, super hard. Because it doesn't make me tough. It, it makes me vulnerable. It makes me open. And we see the difference between their responses. Um, now back to where we should be. Um, we see also in the solution that we have experienced and what ultimately happened with Haman and Mordecai, the way through for the heart of pride was always planning and control. Haman, assemble the army, kill the people, uh, get the silver together, let's get this political capital, manipulate the king, always then beg the queen for my life. There's always a plan of somehow controlling the outcome for Haman. The heart of pride is one of the most creative, sneaky things that, that ever existed. It's always conniving, always thinking uh, um, of how can I get ahead, become more important, defend myself, uh, grow in position and empower in the eyes of those around me. It's brilliant, honestly. And we see that in Haman and we see in Mordecai what? The response was tearing his robes, they fasted, they cried out, and in that was a cry of prayer. If you wonder where, you're, where you might be humble or where you might be proud, ask yourself this question. Where do I obsessively plan and control and think through and what's going to happen? Or you could even ask yourself, where am I so afraid? Because in there, you'll eventually expose places of pride on the other hand, to ask, hey, when, those, when things happen to me in suffering, where do I immediately turn to prayer? Where do I immediately say trust is the only way here? And those are places where we are experiencing humility. In the end, chapter 10 says this, King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. All of the acts of his power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of Annals and the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his fellow Jews. Hear this last sentence, last phrase. Because he worked for the good of his people and spoke of the welfare of all the Jews. NIV that you have in the Pew Bibles, a little bit weak here. Many of you have a translation that says worked for the peace, which is a word that means much more than just good in this context. Um, perhaps 
when we suffer, it shows whether we are living out of a heart of pride or a heart of humility. But the other thing that exposes pride and humility is uh, when we are in a position of power, right? Mordecai ends up in the same position as Haman, and how does he do it? What does he do? How does he use his position, his prosperity, his influence? He uses it for the peace of others. We can think that the best way to judge the inner life of a person is how they respond to suffering, but perhaps we learn just as much with how they handle privilege. Okay, that's the box. We've got two circles left. I told you I got three shapes. We've got two circles left that I want to bring up on the screen because that's the what. That's the heart, right? There, there, there we have exposed what the heart looks like, but here's the cool thing. I have to do zero explaining this morning which inner life is better. I don't have to do it at all. Nobody in here named their kid Haman, right? <laughs> Haman, who was greatly successful, powerful, nobody in here is like, man, I would love that Haman legacy. Like, put that on my tombstone. No one here is hoping for a week where they're more self-obsessed. No one's hoping for more fragile ego. No one gets excited because they have a spouse, a child, a friend that's proud. We know the empty promises of ego. If you are a person, you know that the more obsessed with our own pride and image we are, the more fragile is our peace, the more breakable our joy, the more dominant our triggers and petty anger. And if you've been around God much or looked at his book much, you know the reality of the verses where, where God says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or Proverbs 6.1 is a list, says these are the things that God hates. Number one, God hates haughty eyes. The heart of pride doesn't hate the people, but hates the haughty eyes. And then he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. We don't have to talk about which way is better. That's awesome. That's in us. We know that. We've tried the ego on long enough to know, boy, that thing can feel good sometimes, but man, that thing's, that thing's a beast. That thing devours joy, doesn't build it. What creates this heart? And I want to go real quickly here. In Haman, you can knock all three up there. On the outer side of circle, we saw Haman's behavior. He was striving to get something. The whole text, the whole story, Haman had an agenda. Haman was on the way to get something. How do I have this? How do I accomplish this? My six goals, da 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 da. How do I get rid of Mordecai? How do I rise here? How do I save my life with Esther? He is completely calculated all the time, always striving to get something. Well, where does that come from? That comes from an inner world, one layer deeper, that says I have to be in control. It's terrifying for me to not be in control. I gotta be striving, I gotta get these plans because if I'm not in control, I don't know what's gonna happen. And the lack of control is too much for me to take. And those, that heart, that inner place of like I must control is from this belief, deeply I believe this, is that simply Haman believed that love was a prize to be won. Larry Crabb, so brilliant, um, speaks to this about the human heart is consistently trying to establish, desperately, underneath all our behaviors, trying to establish, uh, answer the question, am I loved? Do I matter? 
Christians do this, non-Christians do this, church people do this, non-church people, men do this, women do this, kids do this, humans do this. Not just American culture, all culture. We're all after finding out what are we lovable and do we matter? If that question is, will you have to do something to get there, you're always chasing, you're always controlling, you're always striving to get something. We see this in Haman all over the text. Compare that to Mordecai. What built the, the humility of Mordecai first, he was living out of something. Mordecai had nothing to prove. It came from this kind of attitude. He trusted Here's a freebie from Pastor Mark. He's been gone for a while. We just talked the other day, and we were talking about what faith meant. And, 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 and he made this great comment. He said, I believe the number one way to understand, to, to be able to tell your spiritual maturity is simply this. How much do you trust? Because it, it demonstrates what's really inside of you. How much do you trust? And lastly, where does that heart of trust come from? is that Mordecai believed love was a gift to be received. Ultimately, it was not a prize he had to strive for. He was living out of something so that he could wear the ring and be the top dog. But he also could be the guy who just stops by the city gates and his, with his adopted daughter way more prominent than him. He was not on the line. He was able to be in multiple positions. And lastly, what we see then in this is that every step towards ego is a step away from reality. If the truth of Scripture is truly that we are deeply and foundationally loved and everything comes from that, well, any step by ego to try to achieve that outside is just living in that which isn't real. Yes, it can be wrong and sinful and all that time, but it's fake. It's it's uh, coming with a, a positive motivation towards a terrible thing. Um, Mordecai, believing love was a gift. Very simply, this is uh, by Thomas Akempis. These are three dead people. I'm going to read you real quick. Thomas Akempis. Love is superior to everything, sweeter than anything, more courageous than anything, higher than anything, wider than anything, more pleasing than anything, more fulfilling than anything, better than anything in heaven and on earth. It is that which Mordecai had, which settled all the other seas. Martin Luther, the more a person loves, the closer he approaches the image of God. And this woman, uh, Teresa of Lisay, she talked about this little way. She talked about the little way, which is basically uh, the, the way of being small. It's the humble way. And she patterned her idea of spiritual growth after what Jesus said in the children. Spiritual writer Therese fashioned her little way after the pattern of children at play. She portrayed spirituality as a relationship with God in which we are like small children who are not driven by achievement, but simply by dependence on God. A child naturally trusts worthy caregivers. Complete confidence in God, hear this, who is loving, wise, and good is the bedrock quality of Christian maturity. And it's the prayer Paul simply said, I wish you'd have miraculous, divine power, supernatural power, to what? Simply grasp 
how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. For the, from that fountain, ego just fades because we already have all that we need. If you'll stand to receive the blessing this morning. Pray with me if you would. God, your love and faithfulness is not just the anchor. You are not just the sustaining, remaining, enduring one. You are more. You are the sea itself. Although we experience many ups and downs in our emotions and often feel great shifts and changes in our inner lives, you remain the same. Your sameness is not the sameness of a rock, but the sameness of a faithful lover. Out of your love, we come back to life. By your love, we are sustained. And to your love, we are always called back. There are days of sadness and days of joy. There are feelings of guilt and feelings of gratitude. There are moments of failure and moments of success. But all of them are embraced by your unwavering love. Oh, Lord, sea of love and goodness. Let us not fear too much the storms and winds of daily life or the whims of the ego. Remind us that you are deep and wide, long and high, and may that be enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are dismissed.